0: Hello, welcome to the ACRO Finals as we continue our podcasts with founders and other important folks that have been part of the college for much of its history. The college was founded in 1978 by 18 practitioners who focused on putting together a group that would gather and exchange views and insights on important developments, both legal and otherwise, in the real estate profession. Today, our guest is Carol Wellborn. Welcome, Carol. Thank you Thank you Thank you for joining us Carol Carol joined acro I think in 1992 no 19 what's the right 89 year? 1989 1989 was Carol's year and Carol was the second female president of the college in uh, 2001 so we'll we'll talk about all that but before we um, before we talk about your, reflections on the college and the many things you did to help the college become better. Let's go, let's, let's roll, roll the tape all the way back to the beginning. I, I, I know a little bit about your, your early life in Hinsdale and other places, but tell us, tell us uh, where you were born and uh, what life like, was like growing up and what were your influencers?
1: Um, well, you know, I was born in Philadelphia, actually uh, moved to Chicago or Hinsdale um, in the fourth grade. So really that's where I grew up. Uh, I had family there and family in Chicago, and that's where my father and mother were from. Um, so that was a really nice growing up experience. But then again, I went as far away as I could to college. That was the goal. And I went to Stanford, um, which I, I loved. Um, and after Stanford, um, do you want me to keep going after Stanford?
0: <laughs> but, but before we jump so far, ahead, so I, I knew you were a cheerleader in college. Is that true? In high school, you were a cheerleader in high school, right?
1: Well, I was a pom-pom girl. <laughs> oh,
0: and what's the distinction?
1: there were more pom-pom girls. It was less selective a group unlikely
0: okay yeah. and but what, we were
1: and as cheery for sure.
0: Why did you decide to go as far away as you could from Chicago?
1: I you know I, we knew so little about schools in those days too, but Stanford actually had a bit of a reputation. We we knew not much, but I had people from my town who had gone there and recommended it highly, and a couple of people in particular that uh, who were older sisters or even mothers of people that I knew, and um, it sounded like a wonderful place. And I really just did want to get away from the Midwest, um, and I wanted to um, go to the best place I could. And in those years, that's what I thought was the best place. So. It turned out to be a really good choice for me. I loved it.
0: And when you went out there did you have any sense that law school was in the um, future for you?
1: No. (laughs) I was the kind of student who took intro to everything. So I had four majors. I started as a math major and I quickly understood that my version of math was not Stanford's version of math. And so I eventually became a psychology major and um, after several others in between, but mostly I just was enjoyed the learning. I loved the fact that we were on quarters and I could take infinite classes. And I graduated early unbeknownst to me, um, uh, but unfortunately my father figured it out. So. Uh, (laughs) I ended up having to stop my collection of classes a little earlier than I thought. That's
0: why you graduated in 1972. I I was trying to figure that out. No, I
1: graduated uh, just a quarter early in 72. Um, But I, um, yeah, so it was a great, great time.
0: And did you take time off between college and law school?
1: I did. I actually applied to um, psychology graduate schools. I wanted a profession, but I realized as I was applying that I wasn't suited to anything that a psychology um, degree would, uh, an additional psychology degree would give me. So I took a year off and I worked in a jail. Um, Actually, I worked in an OR project and um, really, really loved that experience. And that's probably what propelled me to go into law. Um, I was sort of interested in it before, but I hadn't really thought much about it. I didn't have any role models in law. Um, but then I decided that was probably a, a choice that uh, would be good for me. I, and so I took a year off um, in order to also to obtain residency so I could put myself through law school uh, in California. So I went to UCLA Law School.
0: Okay. And, and what were your... Without any, as you say, mentors, backgrounds in law. If you think back, sort of, what were your impressions of being in a good big law school down in, down at UCLA?
1: It was really a wonderful time to be in law school. I think because of what was what had happened, you know, in the political issues at Stanford, and being there from '68 to '72 was a remarkable time to be in college, especially there. And then um, beyond that, my class actually in UCLA, I think was the largest female class ever to that time. So we had over 20%, which doesn't seem like a lot now, but then was a lot. It was almost 25% women. And we really had a, a bonding experience. It was all very you know, coming out of the early, coming into it in the early 70s, mid 70s was a, you know, very formative time for, you know, lots of things going on in the world. And um, I think it was very enlightening for me and empowering and the people were terrific. The professors were great. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I um, developed sort of a sense that I might want to do something in public interest while I was there. I went. Then, uh, yeah, go ahead. And then
0: did I see in your book when I was doing some research that you worked back in Chicago at Isham Lincoln for a while?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, so after being in law school and um, I worked at the Center for Law and Social Policy in Washington, D.C. for six months while I was in school. And after, when I was graduating, I thought I was going to get the only job in the United States that was available to a new lawyer in a in a new, brand new field of environmental law. Well, I didn't get the job. So um, uh, that was the one job I think that I applied for. Um, and I had never clerked for a law firm. So I had to sort of regroup and find a job and miraculously, Aisham Lincoln and Beal hired me. And I did um, administrative litigation there for two years. In Chicago? In Chicago.
0: Right. And yeah. then, And then how did you, you pivoted to go back west again to san francisco
1: yeah i ended up um, after two years moving to san francisco and going to a large firm morrison and forster um, where i started in litigation because that's what i've been doing
0: that's interesting so how did you transition from litigation to transactions in real estate Uh,
1: well after a year uh or not even a year uh, i realized that although i had enjoyed administrative litigation um the kind of sort of, it's it's very different, as you probably know, Um, and I realized that large firm litigation was, um, it required a lot of indirect strategy, and sort of laborious, um, at least in a big firm like that, and the kind of litigation we did, um, kind of a laborious practice, and it was quite solitary, really, Um, uh, and I was, none of those things. I'm very direct and I'm very goal oriented and I'm impatient and I'm social. And so um, I realized that my personality, I don't know how I figured this out, or I think the real estate group came to me and asked me part of it. I don't know how they figured it out, but I realized that I, that was the kind of activity, you know, a goal oriented direct person should be in. And that I love the idea of you know a common working toward a common goal rather than the way litigation was and then of course there were the closing parties and they were legendary in those days <laughs> and i knew they were <laughs>
0: well and that was that was a place right mofo out in san francisco in california had just an all-star cast of real estate lawyers right
1: yeah it and it was huge it was just a growing business and so busy which meant course, that you got a lot of experience as a young lawyer that you wouldn't necessarily have gotten someplace else, but it was very busy, very talented lawyers um, in general in the firm, but real estate uh, for sure. And um, we had a lot of fun. I mean, who were some, it wasn't Kim Seneca there? Seneker was there. Yeah. He was uh, one of the senior people. Noel Nellis was there. And then, um, You know, really below that was our group. Um, So there were no, there were no women, no senior women, really. I think there was only, there were only two senior women, even in the whole business department, technically real estate was part of the business department. Um, and, um, so then it was sort of my group and there were a couple of people slightly older, but not much. And so we all kind of had responsibility for, you know, our transactions. Because there were there weren't enough senior people to go, you know, senior partners to go around. So that was a really great experience. And we had other offices too at the time, but we we grew pretty quickly um, from there, um, quite quickly from there. We had Los Angeles too, where I worked for a while. Actually, I worked for um, about a year heading the real estate group in LA.
0: So talk a little bit about that. Part in your career, you, you, you said you, you know, 20% women at UCLA, which back then was a lot, right? Um, and you were obviously very attuned to those kinds of issues and challenges. Um, what was it like when you got into a big, well established place like MoFo with, it sounds like, correct, Roman, tell us, but, you know, few, um, you know, women role models? To look up to, and and how did you navigate that as the, as you said, outgoing, very smart, tough um, woman that that you were?
1: You know, there were no role models. Um, And maybe that wasn't bad. Um, I think that, I think I, I, it's funny, that's a hard question. I think I was, I think partly because of this large class that we had, and and for some reason, we felt very empowered. as that large class and because of perhaps the time. So I never really felt that, um, I mean, of course I did, but have concerns, but I think I was, I just had agency and I was authentic and I just decided that that was gonna work for me. Um, You know, I spoke up. Also i worked really hard and I was, I wanted to be, call good colleague of the men um and i wanted to be part of a group and to be part of a team and that really motivated me so i think that worked really well at least as a young lawyer um, and, a, and a mid-range lawyer um, as a, as i got more senior i think it gets more difficult because there was there's the classic glass ceiling but um i was the first woman on the policy committee and i was elected as a first-year partner. Um, I think it, was, it wasn't It was because I was quiet or um, genteel. <laughs> it was probably because I was direct, and, um, and people knew I would work hard, and I was committed to the firm. And I'd run the summer programs and done a lot of other things in the firm already. So um, I think it was, um, you know, there were ceilings. Um, especially as it got to clients and taking control of clients and, and pay compensation. Uh, but I think you know they were open. Morrison of course was a very good place to work too. and there were some fine, fine people there and it, it was um, some a lot of those people were very enabling to me and helped me. Um, so I you know so I, I managed along. I think Ackerel actually helped me a lot. Um, it, it, I don't, it gave me some confidence as well because of sort of a, a general respect that people had for each other. And um, I got into back very quickly because I didn't become a real estate lawyer until 1979. And I became a partner of the firm in 82. Well, that's unheard of. You know, I was a oh. lawyer for three years, but, but in 89, which was, I guess there was the 10 year rule then I don't know, if still is, yeah. but 10 years of real estate practice. And my partners really promoted me into that. Um, but that also, I think, helped me a lot because i learning what other people were doing and having sort of a confidence builder of having all these other people out there and other senior partners in other firms that I got to know was, a, was really a good thing for me.
0: So let's talk about that. That's a good segue to, to your actual beginning of your, your really wonderful career and contributions to the college. So 1989, you get in after 10 years of practice, um, a lot of first three early, early at the partnership, early, early to ACRIL, um, all, all, all for the good. Um, and, and it helped you, you started to say through conference building, what else, what else do you remember about your early years in the college? I,
1: I remember particularly my first meeting, vividly, uh, that my, Kim Seneker, who you mentioned, had decided it would be a good idea for me to present a very long paper on a very complex area of law at my first meeting. Wow. And, and it was arcane, it was a very arcane area, about which not everybody would be interest a topic on which not many people would be interested. And um I remember sitting up there and looking out at this sea of people who I thought you know these were like the gods, right? (laughs) And and I was panicked. And somehow I made it through that. But I'll that I'll never forget. I thought, well if I've done this I can do (laughs) it I can do anything. Uh, But I was actually I was very involved with other organizations too. So I'd sort of developed an expertise in an, in another area, which was not the one I was speaking on. And that made it also very fun to be, um, you know, part of that initial, it, you know, I, I became sort of an expert in joint ventures and investment vehicles, uh, partnerships. And that was a pretty newish area in real estate um, in it, when I started working on it. It was the insurance companies who were you know, the financing and joint partners and those all those large deals and, uh, and being a sort of at the beginning of that and being able to meet people across the country who were also involved in that was really, really fun. Um, I was, I think I was probably already involved in the ABA before in fact, I'm sure I was um, where I was. Maybe in, the,
0: maybe in the California real property section, right?
1: I was not. In, no, I was at, in the ABA. I didn't I didn't do California State Bar, but I did uh, work on the ABA. I was the chair of the Partnerships Committee of the real property section, I think, before I got an ACREL. And also I had been um, actually it was later that I was the uh, advisor, ABA advisor to the uh, uniform state laws. And. Um, commission on uh, revising the Uniform Partnership Act. Uh, So that was something that was a constant in in all the organizations I was involved in and made a lot of that really fun. And so I knew some people who crossed over from the ABA and ACRL as well in that. And I did a lot of speaking. I always said it was the old guys and me for a long time. So be, even before I got involved in ACRIL because there weren't many women out there and I think they were interested in having women as speakers. So um, I was, that enabled me to really get involved on a national level in speaking very early. So how is ACRIL different
0: than, you know, ABA or any of these other organizations that you were involved with?
1: Uh, worlds of difference. <laughs> Um, I think that, um, I think there's a commonality among ACRIL people. There's such, there's such a high level, high quality level of practitioner in ACRIL and a lot of interest among the people in, um, in learning from each other and sharing. And because we were all at kind of similar levels, but across the country, And we were doing a lot of similar work. We shared experiences that were both the same and very different. And I thought that was really helpful to me. Um, It gave me perspective on practice. It gave me perspective on people in other firms and what their political and other issues were in law firms. Um, You know, and as more women got in, it was even more fun. But I think if it probably if it hadn't, it's also, you know, very social. And if it hadn't been so much fun and if I hadn't liked the people so much, I probably wouldn't have been involved as much as I was, but there was um, a real openness to, to friendship and collegiality that just didn't, I didn't share in the other organizations for whatever reason.
0: And back then, were you doing deals only or, you know, was principally in California, or were you doing national deals?
1: I was doing national deals from really early on. Um, the only mentor I actually had um, was very for a very short time. Unfortunately, he came to MoFo late and died early. Um, he, he sent me to Washington DC to do a deal uh, which he didn't tell me until we were at some dinner that night that I was flying on a red eye to arrive to negotiate the deal the next morning.
0: <laughs> so,
1: I just I don't know why I think I was thinking that because I was thinking of Washington D.C. His name was Bill Christie. Um, he was actually um, a lawyer for, um, well, for the the Rockefeller um, Equitable Portman Group that developed a number of. Uh, Projects, including a Center, so um, in San Francisco, and he he came over from another firm um, as a senior partner, and it was a terrific man.
0: Okay, so um, early on, I assume in your accrual, um, you know, years, you know, w- women were were starting to get in. It was slow for sure, um, and I have this recollection about this terrific group of women, as we were talking about before we started, who were very important in the college and formed their own women's group. Tell us about that and you know how that played out.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that the person I was worried about generating because by that time, I think I was in leadership. And um, but I think it was Beverly Quayle, actually, who who pushed us to have these meetings. And we got a lot of we got pushback. Uh, from the men about having meetings and women that's exclusionary and we said well you know at some point we said well you can come too if you want so there were a few I don't know you I think you came to probably some no, of them. Def- the,
0: Joe Forte was the guy. Who oh, came Joe great.
1: definitely did Yeah, no he, he crashed the meeting immediately uh, but uh, yeah no we did that and it was really nice it was sort of one of those kinds of groups where you know it's like a uh, I don't know what it's like but it's like a, a Anyway, we we sat around and we would share uh, comments on a particular question, so everybody would answer the question, and um, it was a lot of fun. I don't know; it kind of I don't know if it really disintegrated entirely, but um, I think it's, it was trying to regenerate it. But it's it, I thought it was a really terrific thing, and I got to be friends with a lot of people, and you know, we went through some pregnancies together and at Ackerel, and you know, we watched each other's children get born. And, and that, you know, And I think one of the things I would say about Ackrell to women is that it, it would, it's wonderful if you can stay connected to the people that you're in, that are your friends in Ackrell outside the meetings. If you work a little harder on that, I think people would benefit greatly from mm-hmm. that. And as you know, that's how I ended up at DLA Piper. I mean, I wouldn't, Never have been well, Piper Rudnick. I would not have gone there if I didn't have so many friends in Akral and all the great real estate lawyers uh, that I knew uh, were were a
0: recruiting platform for me. That's how I was able (laughs) able to pull people like you and Steve and and Elliot. Right, right. So, that the women's group, I mean, you, you sort of touched on this when you were earlier in your career. And maybe it's because the the world was obviously different. The sophistication and analysis that we have today, people didn't think about leaning in. They thought about doing good work, like like you were saying, and working hard and doing what came naturally. Now it's a much more collective thought process and more organized in in, in many, many good ways. Did, Did that women's group, do you think, benefit, particularly the women that were behind you guys? right? first sort of round of women who got in in the late 80s and early 90s. Did it benefit us? Did, did it benefit, not just you, but, it, but did it benefit, were you able to mentor a group that's sort of the next group of women that were coming into the college? I mean, some of them would have been your same age cohort and peers, and some of them would have been younger.
1: I think if if there was mentorship, it was probably rather indirect. And sometimes you don't know about that until you're much until much later when someone will say to you, like someone at Morrison and Forster said to me recently something about what how much of um an influence I was on her, but i didn't I didn't know it at the time. So I don't know, I suppose so, and it, it, it was probably a little more subtle because by the time women got into ackerll, they they had accomplished quite a lot, and they were right. already very devoted to their careers, and they were probably not as young as I was when I started, you know, in Akril. So, you know, some of them had been around quite a lot longer. And a lot of the women who came in who were, you know, after who became president after me were older than I was. Um, So uh, I don't know how much mentorship there was. They already had, you know, they probably had other women in their lives as, you know, they didn't need Akril's women as much as probably I would have. Well,
0: so let me ask the question slightly differently. Do you think there was any um, effort, thought that? I mean, one of the benefits of Acro for lots of people has been referrals and help, you know, around the country. When I need a lawyer in San Francisco, I could call you, or I can call Michael Meyer in L.A., or Ted Novak in Chicago, or you know, Norm Goodmacher in Cleveland. Do you think there was ever any sort of? Um, 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 Thought, focus on, you know, let's try to help the women um, in this cohort in ACREL and, and, and and be more successful around the country?
1: You mean among the women? Yes. Um, some, I have to be honest. I, I don't know that there was too much. Um, we had our sort of, we had sort of our networks. I sometimes would use Acrel people, but usually it was in a place where we in a, in a smaller location where we might not have a network and in that case I certainly would have gone first if you know if I knew the women I probably would have gone first to them. Um, probably in smaller firms that, or in firms that were less national it would have been um, would have been it would have been good. I did use Acro for referrals um, uh, occasionally and I certainly you know, Couple times, you know, looked at aunt, to Ann Sager and others. Also, uh, you know, time probably already had their practices developed, and many of those people were also involved in national practices as well.
0: Right, and you and I both grew up at a time where the firms were becoming national, whereas back in the beginning, um, the first ten years of the college, there was no such thing. So those yeah. guys. Got- guys really needed each other, right? When Howard Kane needed some help in New York, he could call Siskind or they could call Hollyfield in Texas.
1: You know, I think I used it for um, intellectual referrals, you know, sometimes, or for more general advice, um, even at, not at meetings where I might need some thoughts or help on something or... Um, support, <laughs> uh, and uh, that I found very valuable. I mean, it's been an integral part of my life, really. Um, I don't. <laughs> it's been a great part of my life. Uh, and socially, you know, you know, it's hard sometimes for people to go when they have children to go to meetings and whatnot. But you know, our theory was we just all go, and which worked. You know, because I had a young daughter when I was older. So, you know, you just drag or drag the family along. And I had a supportive spouse too. So that certainly helped a lot.
0: And we all got to watch Cameron grow up.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Like, yeah. And you
1: say, oh, I can't believe how old she is. Sure.
0: Sure. <laughs> so, so look, you, you've stayed involved, which has been great. What, what would you say, what does the college need to do now? right, to maintain its relevance, but, but for generally, and as to women, but just generally, I mean, we, we've been very focused on diversity, you know, for the last five years and, and more, and we've done reasonably well. No, we're not done, you know, we, we obviously can always do better. We've, 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 we've lowered our average age in a very important way for long-term sustainability. We've, we've gotten more women in each year. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a book that the last chapter is far from written. But, but what what's your views on what the college should be doing um, to really, you know, um, ensure its long-term sustainability?
1: Um, I think it's really making sure people – well, trying to get people as active as possible. I think you don't necessarily have to have everybody active, and you never will. But one thing I think that can help is – um stressing the importance of this um for their uh learning um and keeping it relevant I like I mean keeping the the meetings relevant um and keeping the social activities and you know active uh, I don't I think that's gone by the wayside a little bit um for whatever reason people are busy I think it's harder now because well as you know it's Available hours requirements are just different than they used to be. We didn't have, I mean, I just, we were all expected to be active. We were all expected to write. We were all expected to speak, at least where I was from uh, and be involved in organizations, but there was time to do that. And now it's not so clear there's so much time to do that. So making ACRL the priority of people, making it relevant. And I think bringing in the younger people in a way that's um, thinking about in terms of diversity, Uh, engaging the younger people in ACREL to move the diversity needle because they're the people I think who will know who's coming up, who's maybe going to be the next ACREL member as opposed to the older people. And because I don't, I mean, I don't personally don't know any of the, you know, any young practitioners now, but getting the young practitioners more involved um, as we were uh, when it was a little smaller and a little tighter I think would be a real key to, to keeping it going as an important organization.
0: So you just touched on one of the key challenges today, right, which is the change in expectations of the law firms for sure on billable hours and everything else. You combine that with work-life balance to the extent there's such a thing I just heard Judy Turchin on uh, a podcast last week who's the former general counsel of real estate black zone and CEO of economics. And Judy said, there's no such thing as work-life balance. You, you have to figure out, you know, how you're going to navigate a very difficult maze and, and don't live under some illusion that you can achieve balance. You make choices, right?
1: Well, balance uh, is doesn't have to be equal.
0: Well, that well, that balance doesn't mean equal, right? Yeah. Lots of different weights on the scales. Yeah. right? at the scale and balance, but the, you know everybody. Uh, I just like to say, you know, you pick and choose where you're going to put your energy. But you know, what kind of advice would you give, particularly you know, younger women who are almost always going to be primary caregivers um, in, in the world that we still live in, on how to accomplish what you were just saying, you know, and be successful.
1: It's so hard now. Um, I think that you have to, as you say, you have to make your choices. I think we were able to spread out widely in our activities. And I think now you just have to decide which, where you're gonna focus. You can't spread out too much. Otherwise, I think the problem is that, I think particularly with acro, you get out of it what you put into it. and it's really, I mean, that's maybe true generally, but I think particularly in Acryl, Uh, it's more true with acral because you really, there's not barriers. Um, and so to do that, you need to devote some time to it, some energy to it. And, and that means you're gonna have to probably give up something else. Um, I would say that um, I'm a person who dives in and I choose that mode. And so, Unfortunately, I've spread out maybe too much over time in terms of the things I've done. But I firmly believe that that's means I've gotten a lot out of what I put into things. And so, um, it's I don't know that I'm giving you a good answer. I don't think it's a good answer. Um, you you figure you figure it out. I mean, I I quit my law firm when my daughter was three year, three years old, and. I don't think that was a good it was a good decision, but I thought it was the right decision at the time and uh, I still work pretty much full time. But I worked for myself for nine years um, and those were the those years were relevant years. And then I said, OK, I've got another law firm left in me. Um, then now is the right time to to go out. So I think I don't think you have to stay on a path. I think you have to be authentic to yourself and decide what the right thing for you is at the time. And maybe it's not being an equity partner because you don't wanna work full time. Um, that's a choice and it's a fine choice. And I don't think we should push people into a choice that to be a successful woman lawyer, you have to work full time. You have to work for a big firm because you don't. I became president of acra when I was a sole practitioner. Um, I mean, that was kind of odd, but I suppose, uh, but, uh, I think you just, I, I don't know, I guess I've just been authentic and to what I wanted to do at the time. And looking back, probably made a r- lot of really bad decisions.
0: Pretty well with a terrific kid and terrific career. Um, and as you said, you, unlike lots of people, I think in the college, um, you've seen the uh, practice from many more perspectives, right? You were small, for, you were by yourself, you were Mofo, you were with us for, you know, a, a while and you went back to practicing by yourself and then focusing on your very important nonprofit world for the Y and everything else. What do you think the biggest changes in law, in legal practice are, not law firm practice, in legal practice for real estate
1: lawyers? Honestly? um, too much work, too much money, too much focus on money. I don't think that's the recipe for success. Um, and I'm glad I didn't grow up in that this time because I grew up in a life, a practice where the focus was on relationships with your clients, um, growing in the business, certainly. I mean, it was important, you know, feeling like you were at the top of the scale. That was always important, but the top of the scale was was not a it wasn't a high scale and um, and it wasn't um, there wasn't some focus on you know the hours and the and the and the money. I think the mistake now may be that people believe money is credibility um, and and I don't think that's a good way to think about law um, And so sometimes, that's another thing that ACRL and other organizations can provide, sometimes you need the perspective of other people doing different things to tell you that you know, your law firm life is not, um, it's not the only life there is to lead. There are other lives to lead that could make you feel very successful, um, accomplished, and fulfilled. And um, I, I think I was almost always fulfilled, which, is, which was my goal, I suppose.
0: And um, if you look ahead, I mean, I you know, you know you've been out of practice for a little bit, right? But you've kept in touch and you know, you know what's going on. If you look ahead, what does the future of, you know, real estate law practice look like to you?
1: I really, I'm not the best person to answer that. Um, I'm, I don't know. I think that, I don't know that there can be a real change in the trajectory of the way law firms go. The other thing that's happened in law firms is they are become so big that I don't think people have agent sufficient agency um, and don't feel sufficient agency over their lives. You know, law firms, one of the things I didn't really understand in a law firm structure was the sort of politics and um, uh, authority uh, setup that they had. I mean, maybe I did understand them, but I chose not to. Um, and I didn't know how to navigate them. And I think you have to be aware of all that. So I think it's hard to um, it's hard to navigate that that authority. I think if I hadn't been in a smaller place as a young woman, where it was a little less opaque, I probably couldn't have done it the way I did it. Um, and I guess, I'm not sure how you settled that, how you settle into that, whether you just decide you're gonna ignore it and just be a you know, part of the, just deal with your practice and try to focus on that, or you, you look ahead. I never really had any long-term goal to, to lead an organization. On the other hand, every time I got into something, I wanted to lead it. And so it was really, a, it was always a short-term leadership. And now I would be frustrated because it's gotten too big and I wouldn't be able to lead it, you know, and I, <laughs> I think it, it would be hard. So I guess people find their own places in in that law firm world, but, you um, I don't, I don't know the answer about real estate law in particular.
0: Well, look, you, you said it, I mean, in a couple of different ways. There's no single, shouldn't be any single path for success. People have to choose what they want to do. The, the large law firm world is full of its own set of challenges. There's different challenges in the medium and regional and small law firms. And, and, and you once, I'll never forget this, you once said to me, if the law firm could be clear on the rules of engagement, then you can play by the rules. But the problem is the practices is not just real estate, but the firms have evolved so much and so quickly. There's not a clear set of rules in most law firms, I believe. Um, and that makes it very challenging for people who like some sense of order, right? And some sense of direction, so you
1: know how to drop. Exactly. They're just, op- you know, law firms have become opaque um, and I think what I know, Um, I'm not, haven't been involved in one for quite a long time, Uh, but transparency, I think in a, more transparency in a firm or in an organization is a beneficial concept. I mean, in whatever organization, whether it's a nonprofit, you know, uh, corporation, I think those, those organizations tend to be a little more successful. my daughter was recently interviewing for a job and then she said she found out that you know, all the meetings and the decisions were made behind closed doors and people didn't know how those decisions were made. And she said, I don't wanna work there. Um, I wanna know how decisions are made. And I wanna, even if I'm not the one making them, at least I'll know what, as you say, what the rules are. Um, so I, I guess that's what I would say.
0: So talk a little bit, like, like many things in your professional life, you, you accomplished lots of things and did lots of things early in your career. You had the opportunity to serve on a public board um, way, way before people were focused on just picking a woman to be sure you had a woman on the board, right? Yeah. So, and, and, and it was a fabulous group of people, obviously at A&B with and all those folks. Tell us a little bit about what that, how that influenced you and what that meant for your career.
1: I absolutely adored that experience. It was so expanding. I think that one of the um, one of the questions you had mentioned before was, um, how do you become uh, a trusted advisor? How do you become a really good real estate attorney? And I think the one of the primary ways of doing that is learning the business of your clients and understanding what their goals and needs are, and um, that is something that. I, I liked my relationships with my clients early on as much as I liked anything. And those were always, I mean, was there a hard deal or an easy deal? I don't think it had anything to do with the complexity of the deal ever. I don't think any of the deals were too, quote, too complex, you know, to deal with. It was just clients. Um, and it was either because they, they didn't know what they wanted or they didn't want to share it. Or I just wasn't able to develop a relationship with them. And um, I thought those were my most um, rewarding, well, and my colleagues, of course, but the rewarding parts of practice were being close to my clients. And I had a lot of close relationships with clients for a while. Uh, but but that was my relationships with, was with A and B got me um, when I left, I had to, I was, I had to leave Mofo for this to happen. So this all worked, you know, it all tends to work out, right? Um, I couldn't have been on the, the board of their private fund if I had been stayed at MoFo, but I had been their lawyer.
0: I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah. So when I left, they asked me right away to be on a private board um, uh, that they had. And they had several private investment funds. And what we did, which was the most fun really, was we rolled those private investment funds into the public company and went public. And then I stayed I was one of the people selected to st- of the private funds to stay on the board. and it was um it was a wonderful. I mean I, I learned so much there and I had I, it was mostly really a learning experience for me. I just uh, soaked it in and i I became this was before sarbanes oxley, by the way. I became chair of the audit committee of a public company, which is ludicrous if you think about it <laughs> but um book talk about a learning experience and uh you know i once i found a mistake and i was so proud of myself i don't know that they were so proud of me but <laughs> i was proud of myself but that was a really wonderful wonderful experience um and and actually met a lot of got close to a lot of people through that
0: yeah so the, the common question in that context to transactional lawyers is once you stuck your toe into the business side of the world Um, did you think about leaving the practice of law and going to the business side?
1: Um, You know, I sort of sometimes I would wonder whether I should have taken one of those, you know, general counsel or in-house counsel positions. Um, And I looking back on it, I think that would have I would have been really rewarded by that. But I chose not to do that. I had a nice at that time. I had a nice private practice. I had a couple of people sort of helping me. with my practice. And I had a, I liked my life, honestly. And, um, and I, and I didn't see anything out there that was, that was particularly attractive to me. Maybe if it had been the really perfect opportunity, I would have done it. Um, but it, it, it all, you know, it all works out, right. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, but that was a one, you know, and that was a wonderful experience. And then when I went off that AMB B board, um, I, um, well, now they've gotten huge. Now they're Prologis, of course, um, but I wasn't on it when they went when they merged with Prologis. Um, then I, that enabled me to to really dig in um, to doing some nonprofit work, which um, I could have done, but it, I, I actually spent a lot of time on the AMB board. I was a very active board member, um, and um, it, then I got very involved in something else and a couple other things, a couple other boards, and uh, those have been you know, also extremely rewarding. I think one of the things that um, I did is picked a board that um, had a lot of real estate, has a lot of very complicated real estate projects. And that's made it kind of both rewarding and intellectually challenging, actually. We're doing one right now that's, I had to hire the lawyer and, you know, the real estate lawyer, and that's kind of fun. Uh, at least, like you know, you feel like they're children. They're your children now because kind of they're that old, <laughs> and uh, uh, and we're doing a very complicated project with the city of San Francisco and the port and state lands and all that kind of stuff.
0: That that's your why. That's the why, right? That's
1: the why. Yeah. Um, so that's that's actually been fun too uh, to get involved with a with a nonprofit that's got that's a real estate company kind of.
0: And your the nonprofit part of your blood, which I'm sure was in there for a long time. Tell us a little bit about Aqual Cares.
1: Oh yeah, my favorite, my best accomplishment. <laughs> um, well, um, what was first called? I don't know if we even had a name for it, but um, back when I was, I guess must've been when I was vice president because I wouldn't have had the agency to do it, but um, I, we had a meeting of the people, the the president, and then the people who were going to, you know, in the line sort of to be president and to talk about it because I really wanted there to be a public service component of ACRL meetings. And um, I, there was a lot of, uh, reticence about that Oh, it won't work we won't have people are interested we won't have time we you know we this is not a good idea this is a distraction from what we do Um, and um, I eventually convinced them by taking them to my house in Glen Ellen and serving them a grand dinner sorry just say and uh, with with wine and uh, they came around (laughs) and uh, we had our first project um, in Chicago Chicago
0: we painted the schools right
1: painted the school and um, and one of the naysayers participated and was so enthused about it that he, that he just adopted it and took it forward as did other people and I had a lot I had help actually great help from Wayne Hyatt he was a he was an enormous part of that early those early projects and that meeting um, you'll remember, was uh, my first meeting as president was the one right after 9-11. And there were, it was relatively poorly attended because people really didn't wanna fly and understandably. And so we didn't have a big group, but we had a very, um, that was a very strong meeting in the sense of camaraderie. And I think that was part of the reason that that project was successful. Because everybody wanted to do a project and wanted to have some you know something to do and to gather around and uh that was the beginning and then it went on to become lots more and acro cares and all that but um i was really happy that 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 happened
0: you should be very proud of it because it is a wonderful legacy for what you got started and, and has continued with unbelievable enthusiasm. Thanks to lots and lots of people over the years.
1: It's been great. It's been great. And it's gone so much farther than I ever thought it would. It's just, um, I mean, people have put a lot of effort into it and I'm really happy about it.
0: So I want to close with two questions
1: mm-hmm. before you get
0: to the next very important appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and the first one is, given your incredible career and perspective and all the things you've done, um, what, as you look back, what advice today would you give your 25-year-old self?
1: Dive in. Well, I did dive in. Um, Don't let other people's limitations define yours um, or don't let them, don't let other people define your limits. Um, I would say the best things I've done have been taking risks, um, accepting challenges that I didn't think I was ready for. Um, and and I think, um, and everybody feels this way, I'm sure, but I think that the integrity of being yourself and being tr- honest in transactions, being, um, trying to accomplish what your client wants as opposed to what you want, which is a mistake I made several times, You know, trying to accomplish more than what my client wanted or something different because I was trying to win. Um, those are that's a mistake that I made sometimes Um, but being honest with the people on the other side it it come what it comes around it it all comes around it's it's karma right (laughs) and uh it's really operated to my success um or my fulfillment maybe is a better word um And I would say the challenges have all worked out. I was was a very frightened public speaker when I started. I, um, and I hated it. I just hated it. I had to force myself to do it. And that first meeting of Akron, I swear, I thought I was just gonna, you know, I didn't know what was gonna happen, but I wore a turtleneck, which was the key thing because my neck would just start getting red and red. And so I wore a turtleneck smartly and um, I thought that saved me. (laughs) Maybe they didn't know how panicked I was. That's
0: that's Um, a really great advice. All all those suggestions. But my last last question is, if you... Wear turtlenecks, you you mean? That was good advice? Well, (laughs) no, I don't know know if that's good for the guys, but that's definitely good for the girls.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, If you could have chosen a different career... I'm probably going to say like Stanford basketball or something. <laughs> yeah. like Taravandamir, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what, what do you think would have been your other career?
1: That's a good question. I think I was very well suited to this, and I had no idea. Okay. So. I, I don't. Um, I think if if I had to go over again, I'd probably. Um, I, I probably would move more toward the business side um, because I think that would have um, amused me for longer <laughs> than the law did. Um, and then I could have moved around a little bit and had more flexibility maybe in life. Um, I mean, not that I really didn't, I took flexibility, but um, I, I think I was, I was suited to this, but um, I, I, you know I'm, I like, I'm very goal oriented. I like projects. And I like uh, direct um, movement toward goals. And I'm like that about a lot of things. And I actually like to read and write. Um, And I I think those have always been, and I've always been pretty social even though I was very shy. Um, So I think all of those things are really qualities that enable you as a lawyer. Um, And I'm pretty analytical. Most friends would say I'm too analytical, but maybe I think that's something I've learned as opposed to had.
0: Right, we, we won't go there, but, but for and you-
1: independent, and independent.
0: <laughs> very independent. And, and in some way, I'm not surprised at your answer, right? Because for you, this, this career has really touched on law, business, and nonprofit, right? You, you've been in three great um, worlds in addition to um, lots of other things that, that you, you've you done and, uh, and accomplished. Over I years.
1: take it back. I would have been a lawyer, but I would have been that lawyer that I was trying to be that first year. I would have been probably better as a or I would have enjoyed being a public s- servant and in, in the environmental field, which was burgeoning, you know, not burgeoning. It was brand new then. Um, but I had done a little of that work in D.C. And I think I look I think that, that would have been a great another great career it didn't turn out that way but um i got you know i got to do a lot of other things
0: yeah and accomplish a lot of great things well carol thank you very very much for taking the time to be part of this series of podcasts i I think uh, much of what you said will resonate with um, hopefully many interested listeners in the coming months
1: thank you thank you and i love acro so get in there and have fun